What's up, folks? My name's Justin Kana. Happy, happy Monday. Welcome to The Emulsion, episode 16, a show where I talk about chef and restaurant and fine dining news that's mattered to me in the past week or so. It's an early one here in Seattle. I've got a early morning meeting to head off to, so sorry to any local viewers who are probably still sleeping or maybe at work, but to those abroad, I hope you're having a great day so far. It's just you and me today. I need to get one of those little little sound boxes that radio guys have where I can just play like applause or booing or in this case like some smooth jazz to set the mood. Sorry, that was a tangent. I think today is going to be a little bit of a tangent episode. I can feel it. Um, but today we're going to stick with our roots on uh, this episode. If you've had a hankering for some news stories and you've been kind of like missing the that part of this show, last few episodes have been interview shows, today's the day. We're getting back into the news today. Today's beverage is, oh, it's so basic. It's kind of basic. This is This is the mug. Really, 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 really basic. Um, and our Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee is inside. So nothing new, something we've already experienced on the show, but a little ASMR action. <sighs> okay, so that will hopefully not only make my mood better, but it'll make the show a little bit more exciting as we get into it today. Um, so first up, and something that I actually really wanted to get into um not just like in the base level, in the way that uh, a lot of the articles or news stories have been covering it, but here on the emulsion, I, I'd like to think that you can come here and get something a little bit more than that. And we're going to dive deeper into Next's Hollywood menu. So Next, of course, the restaurant in Chicago, uh, the Grand Ackett's spot that changes its menu three times a year. Uh, so they pre-release season tickets, which is a year-long thing, and you kind of buy tickets to one of three menus or the entire season. Um, they just transitioned out of ancient Rome into Hollywood. Uh, and I want to get into it with this menu as far as the food goes, but first I want to start this whole segment by asking a question about kind of where we are in week, 23, in week 23 of 2017, this very modern state, the present, where you have these places that are doing limited availability, but very consistently executing menus, right? So a few episodes ago, we chatted about Noma, Mexico, which I guarantee if you're in it, if you're like really in it, in this industry, I could show you a photo of like the octopus tentacle and you'd either like roll your eyes because you've seen it three million times or you'll be like, that's the one with the pumpkin seeds, right? So my point being here, as much as us chefs get kind of like complacent or want to consistently be creating and changing, it proves, both of these menus prove, in my opinion at least, that there's a market for a heavily researched and planned and executed menu that provides like a bomb experience that's worth sharing, right? Regardless of whether or not you as the chef get tired of creating the dishes or it's not new to you, uh, you kind of can make these greatest hits of yourself, at least with the menu. And a lot of people argue these days that with everybody kind of like taking photos of, of everything, and especially when you go out to eat, you have to be constantly changing because if it's on Instagram, it's old news. But the market kind of tells you the other way, the other way, if that makes sense with, with these, these really, really big players doing menus that stick around for, you know, like the next menu sticks around for three, four months at a time. 
So I'd argue that food is one of the best mediums to have Instagrammed because if you can manage to host an amazing meal for someone and they're compelled to share it as a viewer of that photo, like if you're if you're at home and you're scrolling th- through your feed and you see that photo, you can you can only experience it with one sense, which is your sight. Or maybe if you have that friend that makes videos like me, you manage to get sight and sound uh, contributed or shared. But when you're sitting in that chair at whatever place it may be, you literally get hit with all five senses. And that's like nothing that can be shared on the internet until we get <laughs> these weird VR food bloggers, which is, it's it's going to be a thing, no doubt about it, virtual reality experiences being shared. And I, I can't wait for it, but just shout out to whoever finds this episode in the future when I'm talking about VR food, food bloggers. But regardless, I think what happens is basically a different sense of hype when you see photos of menus before you get a chance to sit down, you get all these expectations in your head, which aren't always good, right? Because you expectations, we hate, as chefs, we hate expectations because, you know, if it, it, it goes back to like, I remember one of the first guys who did it, or at least the first guy who's, who did it with a sense of intent was Daniel Hume at 11 Madison Park, where he would literally just list, um, they, they, that, this was back when they had the grid menu and they would do like foie or raspberry or just just one ingredient uh, descriptions of dishes just so that you wouldn't get this uh, strange expectation of like, you know, ro- herb roasted XYZ with creamy this. Uh, there was no adjectives involved. And that was just because those those are the only places where we could kind of give you any sense of expectation towards what you're eating. And if we take that away, then the only thing that we can provide is a sense of surprise. Um, but I think if you can manage to tell your story well enough at the table and then craft the details of the dish well enough as well, you can essentially use word of mouth to scale the experience in the best way. And I think a lot of these places that are doing these uh, consistent uh already planned out, not spontaneous at all, tasting menus are doing that in the best way. I equate it very similar to like reading a book before you see the movie, right? Like if you see any of these uh, meals on Instagram or or Facebook or wherever you choose to, to consume things from your favorite foodies, you basically end up creating these characters in your head based on what you've read. Maybe like and maybe like there's some illustrations that the author has provided you, but you still like see it in your like until you see it being portrayed on the big screen, like when you're comparing it to book to movie and you see it on the big screen with music and effects and characters interacting like with real humans playing these roles, it's definitely an entirely different experience. And and don't get me wrong, it sucks sometimes. Like I remember the first time that I had mango sticky rice in Thailand. I was so pumped because I had all these photos of the best spots in Bangkok and I ate it for the first time. And if you don't know, they make a salted coconut sauce, which goes on top of the rice, which totally took me off guard. And I was like, whoa. But I had a very similar feeling with Emma Watson when she played Hermione in Harry Potter, but that's another podcast. I told you this was going to be a tangent episode. You guys got to keep me in check here in the comments. I just realized I'm also making an incredible transition with that movie tangent because next Hollywood, let's let's actually talk about that menu. Um but Hollywood, what what does that mean? I'm going to read you a few of the movies from the menu to see if you recognize them. And this goes back to that point I made about not really giving you any sort of, of, of dish, just more or less saying the title of a movie and seeing how they can surprise you. So I'm going to read you a few of the movies off of the menu. The Breakfast Club, The Wizard of Oz, 
20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, Blade Runner, The Godfather, Ratatouille, Pulp Fiction, and the list goes on. So what's interesting here is that there's no food listed, right? So even the quote of, there's a quote at the bottom of the menu that says, life is like a box of dot, dot, dot. And that ends before the punchline. So that is all to make way for a really unexpected and whimsical menu. Um, The problem with that, and the article that I'm going to reference in the show notes makes as well, is that a lot of it requires a backstory, right? So a lot of dishes, especially if you if you if you've been to a fine dining place before, or you're you're someone who presents food in a fine dining place, a lot of dishes usually come with some sort of an explanation, right? We'll call it a spiel, and especially at this fine dining level, when you go to present a dish and you're like, what happens when you kind of set a dish down and you're making a nod towards a movie or a classic? And the diner has never seen it, right? Doesn't that create a whole nother set of problems? Like for me, I watch a lot of the new movies, but I've never actually seen the original Blade Runner. Wait, do you hear that? That's the sound of me alienating some of my audience. But in reality, like my girlfriend is the same. She loves movies, but a lot of these references might go way over her head, which is like she's never seen the original Star Wars. But to me, that's great because if they're delicious, I'm way more compelled to watch the movie later and then tie it to that dish, which is like so crazy to think about that we live in a, in a in an age where I can literally go to a place, have a dish about a movie, and then go home and watch that movie and connect the food that I ate to that movie. That's that's pretty special and something that I don't think has ever been done before. But so these dishes require an explanation, and I'm going to read you one from one of the articles just so I don't bore you going through this entire menu, but the person I'm quoting is Jenner Tomaska, if you hear me quoting. Um, Jenner is, of course, the current head chef running next. So this is the Star Wars dish. So the dish is frog's legs ground with split peas and seasoned with berber, which is an Ethiopian spice blend. So then the presentation is trying to source... Uh, so the presentation, it says, trying to source Han Solo's blaster, Jenner Tomaska started by finding replicas of the stage props. They were prohibitively expensive. So he and his crew got toy guns and spray painted them and put some elbow grease to achieve the right look. If a guest pulls the trigger, the gun makes a noise. So the idea, so they, they, the, the article breaks it down into the dish, the presentation, and now the ideas is, quote, in Return of the Jedi, Jabba the Hutt eats, up, eats the patty frog. Jenna Tomaska says, quote, so I was like, wouldn't it be whimsical if we did a frog bite and served it on top of the Han Solo blaster? We talked about lightsabers, but the dish came to this and circled back to that scene, end quote. So picture that. You not only have to talk about the dish, like the food itself on the plate, but then you also have to tell like a little cute story about the presentation, and then you also have to reference the movie. Would you be interested in eating something like this? I'd, I'd really be interested to know. A lot of people that hate being spieled at at restaurants would not like this, but the reason that I want to talk about it is because I get personally apprehensive when I talk too much, right? So one, if I'm at a table and I'm kind of spieling a dish, the food is getting cold with literally every single second that my face is moving if it's a hot dish, or it's melting if it's a frozen dish, and second, you really need to be empathetic towards the kind of evening that your guests are trying to have, right? So... I would like to think that everybody who goes to this next Hollywood menu is totally fine with having kind of like 
this shared experience and being talked to all night and being explained all of these dishes because you have to like you can't get you i if if you explain that dish to me frog's legs ground split peas seasoned with an ethiopian spice blend i would there was zero chance that i would tie that to star wars zero you you need to have these explanations but if there's a couple that's sitting down and they're kind of like eating or fighting god forbid or even like hopefully just having a great time connecting over food and wine when I go to present, I think, who am I to kind of flex my story on them? But then, like we just talked about, you flip the coin, and I've had it where I'm super into a meal. I've been, like, dying to go eat there. But something gets presented by a server that either doesn't know enough about the dish or maybe there's a chef that comes and runs the food, but, like, they're just too busy to kind of give a proper explanation. And I either taste things or I see things and I'm eating and then I'm like, this is amazing idea. But I fear that to someone who doesn't know food that well, they're just eating like corn with chanterelles, if that's all they were told or, you know, whatever. And I'm just super confused about, you know, they're maybe just super confused about what just happened. They just know that whatever they had was just delicious. And I've, I've, I've had it before. So it's it's such a give and take, right? You have to decide how much you're going to decide to speak with the guest and how much you're going to decide to share. But I think with a menu like this, it's almost a must. I'd really be interested to get your opinion on if you could deal with, um, I believe it was 11 or 12 courses. Um, and, and if you could deal with that triple explanation bombshell that comes with that. Wrapping it all up, though, I feel like we live in a world where at the highest level, right, the super high-end fine dining level, the menus are the set lists, and the chefs are more or less still performers, but, you know, we all lived through that time where everyone says that chefs are rock stars, but I would argue that you can be a jazz-style artist, right, where you can go improv every night, or every day, or every week, and change things up, or you can be more or less like a Rolling Stones kind of a chef, and you have a, a set of greatest hits, uh, much like Heston Blumenthal does, and you kind of like play those to everybody who travels for miles to come see you. Or you can be a freestyle rapper and just spit straight fire like I do on my pop-ups. Just kidding, but it's it's real, fam. Sign up on my email list. I'll invite you to one of my pop-ups. Uh, I just think it's a really interesting time. Because Next has been doing this for 20 menus now, which already makes me feel old. I remember when Paris 1906 came out. I literally have that ebook downloaded on my iTunes. What a throwback. Tangent episode. But that's Hollywood, right? So hopefully uh, you take a look at the photo gallery of the food. Uh, go ahead and just search their location on Instagram. That was one of my ways that I found a lot of like nice descriptions of the dishes that they have. Uh but the article that I shared is from Eater. They do a deep dive into three different dishes where they actually interview Jenner so that you can uh, get his take on the exact uh, reason why dishes are the way that they are. Um, but to do a little quick transition, I want to go from movies to internet stuff, still in the video realm, but do a little shout out to a channel on YouTube that I've been getting really, really into lately. And that is the channel called Binging with Babish. Now, you've probably heard uh, of this already, but Andrew Ray, uh, he is new to me, and what he does, literally, he takes really great pop culture or movie or TV uh, food items, so things that you've seen on, on, the, on the screen, and he recreates them. So, 
he often follows the way that the movie does it, right? So either from a very limited description that he's gotten from actually watching it or like from weird online forums that, you know, dive deeper into those worlds. But the best part is that he goes one step further than that and creates a better version. So take his most recent video where he does a Krabby Patty, the way SpongeBob describes it. And then he says, fuck that and makes his own version with super, super umami ingredients, which I think is really, really cool. And just that combo of creative cooking plus pop culture, plus he's he's literally a guy who's an educated cinematographer, so his videos always look great, and I, I'm I'm just a fan. Andrew, if you ever want to come on DoD, let's let's collabo. Uh, okay, maybe, maybe let let's do two channels. So Byron Talbot is also a channel I've been really enjoying. Uh, he is very very consistent in his style of video. You know exactly what you're gonna get when you go to his, his channel. Um, he's a gentleman out of LA who more or less uh, caters to the home cook, but his he's got beautiful shots and his palate is is really great, at least from the way that I've heard him talk about food. He always goes through the dish at the end and tastes it through. Um, he's a lot cleaner than I am. He wears like white, white t-shirt, white apron, really, really bright, natural light kitchen. Um, but I still really enjoy watching, so definitely check him out too. I will link both of those channels in the description. Uh, next up is the Eater Young Guns 2017. And now this is a story that I'm not entirely sure I want to dive that deeply into. Um, but I just want to make sure that you have the facts going behind it because there is no doubt that you will hear about this awards coming up in your news feeds over the next few weeks. Um, I basically want to touch on it briefly because I think it's important to acknowledge those doing things cool enough to get nominated. Um... A lot of it is maybe like friends and family nominating them, but also give Eater a nod at a successful marketing strategy. Uh, they kill it with these awards, much like they do with their their annual awards, like the Eater 2016 awards or anything like that. What the, basically happens is they manage to get an incredible amount of social media hype to it, right? So as chefs, the, the, the work to media credit ratio is often skewed in an unfavorable unfavorable direction so when articles or videos or photos come out that praise the work that we do every day um we not only get the risk we not only respect the impact that they have as far as like how diners see us and our food but it also just feels good right anyone who's ever opened a place will guaranteed share articles hyping it up because there's a sense of pride that comes along with being part of something bigger than you plus that like mom, look, I'm on TV effect happens and you just kind of like want to share it with all your family. Um, but as we do on this show, whenever I'm talking about awards, I'd like to give you the backstory as to what qualifies the nominations and who's voting. So Eater opens the floodgates and they received 1,240 nominations from 101 cities across the U.S. and Canada. These young guns have to be 30 or under and have at least or, or if you're over 30, you need to have less than five years experience, right? So the idea is that they highlight the best and the brightest talent in the restaurant industry who represent the future of dining in America and Canada, apparently. <laughs> so they take that list, the uh, nominations list, and eaters, editors, past winners, and a judging committee of industry leaders, which I read into a little bit, and that includes Hugh Aitchison, Dominique Crenn, Corey Lee and Marcus Samuelson, including maybe like eight more really, really high-profile chefs, um, and they all weigh in, and then they take the list of 55 semifinalists, which they kind of like just posted, that's where I'm getting all of this news from, and they narrow it down to finalists. So 
the the person who had the most nominees this year nominations this year had 52 the youngest person is 20 years old which is very very ripe and young and the oldest is actually a pair of 43 year olds who have only been in the industry for a year and a half but regardless um I'm all for giving credit where credit is due, especially to cities in the U.S. that, you know, serve their own little community. Um, but it'll be interesting to see where this kind of goes, how how it plays out. Um, I read through a lot of them. There's a few of them in Seattle. So they're individuals that I need to reach out to and say hello to, um, people that are really doing it and really young. Um, but yeah, I, I just want to make sure that you have all the knowledge going into who and why and where with these awards. So next up, a we're going to inject a little bit of science in your life, a little bit of chemistry, organic chemistry, more or less. Um, Wired, the magazine, the science magazine, did a piece on this guy outside of L.A. at a place called Lost Spirits Distillery, where... A man is attempting to recreate the flavors of 20-year-old rum in six days. And I say attempting, but he, you know, seems to have successfully done it. Um, so Byron Davis, the founder of the distillery, and, and, and what he's doing is literally, and I quote, throwing all the tools you'd use for curing cancer and making a Mai Tai. So, here, so here's the science, and I'm going to, I'm going to, paraphrase the article a little bit, right? Quote, there's a simple way and a complicated way of thinking about distilled spirits in a barrel. The simple way is to think of a barrel like an inside-out tea bag. The wood of the barrel, that are almost always made of white oak, contain, contain compounds that taste good when they degrade, especially when the interior has been toasted or charred. The lignin, hemicellulose, and other polymers that give the wood structure break down to produce sweet vanilla notes. So if you've ever had a really nice oaked champagne or um, kind of like an oaked oaky whiskey, you'll get these vanilla notes, toasted toasted bread, um, those sorts of flavors. And with alcohol being such an efficient solvent, it uh, the alcohol actually seeps into the wood and then captures these compounds. And then when you kind of pour it off, you end up tasting those things. So you might start with traces of something like um, butyric acid, which is not really that desirable of a flavor. And this all comes with aging, right? So you you end up getting butyric acid in 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 the the alcohol that you're you're working with. It's partially responsible for that like vomity smell that you can detect in parmesan cheese sometimes. But when you combine it with ethanol, which is alcohol, it forms ethyl butyrate, which smells like ripe pineapple. And this is where those this is where two things happen, right? So this is where when you see someone swirling a glass around and they're smelling these things, they're just chemical compounds that, you know, our nose detects and associates with these things that are very real in real life that we've either had in our past or, or hold a certain memory to. But you can manage to create them artificially, and that's where a lot of the artificially flavored candies come from, where they just kind of make a chemical compound to stimulate certain things. But what's interesting to me is the business facet of this whole thing, right? So trying to speed up the aging process of, of booze. So they the article cites that an oak barrel costs $150 just as a down payment. And then after it, if you're going to age this thing for 20 years, you have to add warehouse rent and maintenance on that space as well as taxes on top of that. So 
you end up getting this extremely, extremely expensive uh, product at the end. And then during the entire process, you get loss due to r- the semi-porous nature of the vessel, which is your barrel, right? It, it, it's porous, it's wood. So you end up getting like stuff soaked into the barrel. So you'll automatically lose stuff right off the top. Plus you lose stuff to evaporation, right? So the article jokes that, quote, it just sits there mocking investors by producing no immediate tangible return. It is without a doubt one of the more idiotic business models ever devised in no small part because supply and demand are wholly uh, asynchronous. Sorry, my words aren't working today. Consumers today clamor for quality-aged bourbon, which would have re- would have been really good news for distillers only if they had had a time machine and could travel back five or ten years to ramp up production. I think that's really funny. Uh, so here's what essentially happens, right, to this, this Byron Davis guy. This is what he's actually doing. Um, and you can check out the full story that I'm going to link in the show notes so you don't get anything twisted. This is just my, my chef Cliff Notes version. So they, they, they have a vat, and they put unaged booze and, and chips of wood uh, in the tank, and they heat it uh, to like 140 to 170 degrees Fahrenheit for several days. So then these acids in the wood turn into volatile molecule, molecules uh, that get created during fermentation, and then those turn into esters. And then basically what they do is they take a halogen light bulb and blast light at it. That's very, very, very intense. And that speeds up the process by breaking down polymers in the wood. And that'll release all these compounds and a few things that you don't want, apparently. Uh, during that process, when you're trying to speed things up, you get things uh, that are, let me see, medium chain acids and precursors to ethyl acetate, which is basically nail polish remover. So you don't want that. Um, so then they'll take that back into the tank after it's been in this weird light tube for a little while and make it go through a few more reactions. The acids convert into esters, um, and then those will bond to other molecules resulting in compounds with rich honey-like notes identical to those formed by long-term aging. So, you know, for all the attention and investors, Davis insists that cheating time isn't his chief goal. And I'm quoting Davis now. I think the biggest thing we're trying to do is gain artistic control. So my opinion on this, as far as being more efficient, I like that, but they do say that efficiency is the enemy of effectiveness, and I definitely agree with that, but it's similar to any discovery or research, right? It might not apply or be the best for the rum industry, but it might have amazing applications to, off the top of my head, like cheese making, right? So I don't know, maybe like putting cheese with different cultures or different like aroma compounds in a vat and then blasting it with light manages to extract flavors that we like but i just i'm 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 convinced that if aliens arrive on this planet and we can confidently serve them something that shows that we're not monkeys anymore that i'm I'm all for that uh light blasted food that that needs to be a a new adjective on the menus So to close out the show today, I'm going to leave you with our non-industry piece, but I want those of you that are in the industry to listen up because it's got a lot to do with you. If you have any ambition to own your own shop or at least run the show someday, um, and that piece is by Max Joseph. It is a, I think it's a 35 minute, yeah, 35, it's a 35 minute um, documentary uh, that's free to watch. It's on YouTube. I've, I've linked it in the show notes and it's called Dick's. Do you need to be one to be a successful leader? 
Uh, no, it's not porn. It's all about uh, his industry of being a filmmaker and the directors that he works with and the fact that they're just generally assholes, usually. They scream and they belittle or manipulate all for the sake of their creative art or experimental production. Sounds familiar, right? Yeah, you see that a lot in this industry with chefs. But in my opinion, anyone interested in leadership or being in a creative field with these kind of directors or bosses, I, I mean, I guess I should say should watch this. And as someone who is committed to kind of going far and shooting big without any without that coming at anyone's expense, I found it super valuable and inspiring. So I hope you can um, head off to experience that next. But regardless, this has been episode 16 of The Emulsion. Whether or not you've been here on Facebook or YouTube or, you know, I've because we don't have a guest, I have a device free. So this is also going on Anchor today. Stay tuned for that. I hope you're if you're watching on Anchor, go ahead and call in. Give me give me a shout out there. Or if you're on iTunes, I want to thank you for listening. It's great to be back doing all of the news things. Of course, share this podcast on one of your social networks. I know there's someone who you work with or maybe someone that you know that could use a little bit more industry knowledge in their life. Go ahead and tag me and use hashtag the emulsion and I'll be sure to say hi. Thanks so much in advance. I'm Justin Kana. Have a good one.